Welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers, everyone. I am your host, David Johnson, the Skeptic, and I'm joined by my other host. I'm Dale, representing the Christian R. Seeker side. And just to make things interesting, we've got a very special guest, Mr. Mike Lacona. How are you doing? Well, good, David. Dale, great to be on your uh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Excellent. Now, we've, we've got like uh, three pages of accolades for Mike Lacona, but honestly, look it up. We don't have that kind of time. Dale, why don't you tell us a little bit about Mike? Give us give us the short version. Yeah, so so I think most of our, our listenership will be familiar with Mike Lacona from, from the Unbelievable show. Um, you know, he's a, a famous biblical scholar. Um, he's written several books. Uh, two of the most important to me in my research uh, were The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach, and most recently, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Uh, what you know, what we can learn from ancient biography. Um, yeah, I'm mostly excited to have Mike Lacona on for personal reasons because he he's been helpful to me during my my search uh, pers- personally. And um, yeah, I really appreciate having on Christian fellow Christian guests and apologists that really care about people and trying to reach out and help them come to a knowledge of Christ. So yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful to, to you, Mike, for doing us the favor of coming on and for everything you've done for me t- in uh, my coming to faith. Well, thanks, Dale. My pleasure, brother. And uh, I I was excited to have Mike on because Mike is one of the, uh, should I say few? He's one of the Christian apologists that, as an atheist, I really like, I really enjoy. So he uh, he's an, a, a Christian apologist that I knew when uh, I was still a Christian. Uh, I liked him then, and I liked him after the fact. And so that, that hasn't been true of uh, all of the apologists that I once liked. And I think the thing that I like about uh, Mike most is that he will tell you what he actually believes, uh, even when it makes him vulnerable. And by vulnerable, I mean, uh, you know, he, he doesn't mind getting in trouble with his own side. <laughs> and so uh, you, you can kind of get a sense that he's shooting straight with you. Uh, because sometimes there's there's blowback and he ends up uh, shooting himself in the face, and he'll he'll still keep firing. Way to go, Mike! Uh, well, <laughs> hey, hey, uh, just to correct something there, David, it, it's not that I I don't mind getting friendly fire. I mean, I I don't enjoy that, but it's, I'm I'm willing to do it in the interest of discovering truth. Yeah, so uh, we we really uh, both appreciate that about you. Uh, Mike, t- tell us something about yourself, maybe a project you're working on. This is a good time to go ahead and plug something because we're going to forget to do it at the end of the show because we're really lousy at this. Uh, so let's go ahead and take the time now and uh, tell us, you know, what, what two or three books do you want people to buy? We'll, uh, we'll put some links in the show notes and, um, you know, what, what website or Twitter feed do you want people to follow? Just give us, take, take a moment to plug. Oh, okay. Well, thanks. My website is risenjesus.com. That's pretty simple. Um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Michael Lacona. My uh, Facebook, I have a personal page and a public figure page. Um, I don't accept friend requests from people I don't know um, or barely know on my personal page I because I've tried to get I've tried to, I used to have 5,000, now I'm down to like 900, but I'd really like to get that even lower because then I don't see what's going on with my real friends. Um, 
So uh, they can go to my public figure page, which is facebook.com forward slash michael.r.lacona, and there they're going to see the post that they want to see anyway. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, books, uh, well, the two Dale mentioned, uh, The Resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach if someone is really interested in getting a very in-depth look at uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Did he rise from the dead? So in that, I start off and I talk about the philosophy of history. What is history? Um, how knowable is the past? How do we come to know the past to some degree? Who has the burden of proof? What is the burden of proof? What happens when miracles are involved? What are our best sources? What do we learn from those sources? Um, uh, you know, and then what's the best explanation for what we learn from those sources? Um, so I try to be as objective in that as possible. It's a, you know, it's 700 and some pages and it's, it's fairly thorough. Um, my most recent book is the other one that Dale mentioned, why are there differences in the gospels? What we can learn from ancient biography. This is a groundbreaking book in so far as it deals with gospel differences from a whole new perspective, a whole new angle. Um, Richard Burge's book, uh, what are the gospels from 1993? And he just had his 25th anniversary edition of it, published by Baylor. Um, in in that book, he argues that the Gospels are Greco-Roman biographies, or that they share much in common with Greco-Roman biography, and that uh, that genre, uh, the literary conventions for writing ancient biography differ somewhat from what the literary conventions for writing modern biography. Biography. There were flexibilities that ancient biographers were allowed that uh, modern biographers, some of the, they use some of them, but they would eschew others of them. That would be too much flexibility and creativity. So realizing that um, if we read the Gospels in view of their ancient biographical genre, does that help us to uh, shed light on certain things in the Gospels like Gospel Differences? And it does. It sheds a lot of light on it. So that was my most recent book. This year I'm working on a popular level version of it. I've been asked uh, several times to do that, so that's what I'm working on. And this year I hope to have it done by November, and we'll be dealing with how does this impact uh, things such as uh, divine inspiration, biblical inerrancy, uh, and authority. And the other project I'm working on at the moment is, and been doing for several years is the historical reliability of the Gospels. Um, in view of their biographical genre, and that's kind of a thorny issue I'm finding. So um, that's that's what I'm working on right now. In fact, I have a journal article on it where I'm going to be assessing Augustus. Uh, I'm sorry, Suetonius's life of Augustus with the Gospel of Mark, uh, according uh, to four criteria for reliability. So that's in a nutshell what I'm doing right now. Okay, and yeah. you say 700 pages. Yes. Yeah. So the last time I read seven hundred page book, it was uh, like the Portland, Oregon phone book. Uh, <laughs> slow read, bad plot line. Um, I used to sell ads for Verizon. So <laughs> I, I recommend though, David, if, if if you are interested in studying the evidence for the resurrection, this is one of the best the best resources. So it is worth worth it to go through the the seven hundred pages there if you if you can find the time. It is it is really worth it from from what I've read there. Yeah, I'm um, looking forward to it, actually. Perfect. <laughs> perfect. Um, so, yeah, so I think uh, that's a good segue into giving into our sort of introduction. So, so Mike, if you could 
maybe uh, give us sort of an indication of your faith journey. Um, you know, I mentioned that you've been helpful for me uh, in in certain ways in my research when I was going through my doubts. And I know that's something that you've been through yourself. So maybe just give us sort of a an introduction to your faith journey and, and any doubts or anything that you had along the way. Sure, Dale. Um, well, I was kind of strange as a kid in, in so far as uh, I remember my, my, my mom left my dad at age five and ended up getting divorced. And um, so when we moved in with my grandparents, we started to go to a Presbyterian church down the street. And I can remember probably at age seven or eight, uh, walking to church with my mom and saying, Mom, how do I get to heaven? How do, how do we get to heaven? And she'd say, well, Mike, you know, you just have to do more good than bad. And I said, well, you know, I got a sister. I pull her hair. I hit her. I cause her to cry. Uh, you know, what happens if I've done more bad than good? She said, well, then you go to, to hell to be with the devil forever. And I'm thinking, well, where am I on that scale? Um, and it was just something that just strange that at an early age, I just wanted to know how to get to heaven. Um, so at age 10, uh, my mom had remarried. We had moved to Baltimore County and we were going to a different Presbyterian church and uh, they combined the Sunday school for youth one Sunday. Uh, I'm guessing it was in the summer <clears throat> and they brought in a Christian magician and this guy would do magic and then he would relate what he was doing to the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus that, you know, he died for us and we can have eternal life. And, and for the first sense, the first time it, it made sense to me what the gospel was and how the Christian message of, of how to have eternal life. The guy tricked me into heaven, this magician, you know? So, uh, they gave an invitation at this Presbyterian church, which is strange for Presbyterians. And I remember three of us went up. I went up. I thought this is what I've been looking for. And I went up and, uh, uh, put my faith in Christ that day. Um, I didn't grow too much. I just grew a little bit spiritually as as a teen, and uh, went to a Christian university, Liberty University. I was a music major there, Christian environment. I was really growing spiritually. I was uh, got to a point where I was reading the Bible an hour to two hours a day in undergrad. I was praying an hour to two hours a day. And again, that's just I know it's strange for a college student that age, but I was just spiritually hungry. And, and a hunger to know God. Um, I decided I wanted to uh, be able to read the New Testament in its original language, Greek, so I enrolled in grad school. Um, I had been an average student my entire life. I have ADD. I have an average IQ. Um, and uh, I didn't, I, I think I had like a 2.8485 GPA in undergrad and only one semester in Greek. I, I took as an elective, but I did really well. I got an A. They let me into grad school on probation. I had to take a year's worth of Greek over the summer before getting in, and um, I aced all my, my Greek courses. Toward the end of my master's degree uh, in religious studies, I started to have doubts about the Christian faith. And it wasn't necessarily anything that brought it on. It was just, how do I really know this stuff is true? I think I've got this relationship with the Lord, but... Um, don't the Mormons who come to my front door think the same way? What about Muslims? What about Buddhists and Hindus? And, you know, is it a matter of I was just born in the United States and therefore I ended up being a Christian because I'm in a Christian family? Uh, this started to really bother me. Um, that's when I, uh, I heard about Gary Habermas and I uh, had a roommate who was doing a master's degree in apologetics. I had no use for apologetics up to that point, up to that point. But I decided to go see Gary and uh, we talked and he helped me at that point. 
and it was enough to get me through grad school. I went home, and then I'm starting to bump into to people who were not believers, and they would challenge my faith, and I didn't know how to answer it. And I'd call Gary, <laughs> and there's no email back then, you know, but uh, I'd call Gary and uh, talk to him, and we became really good friends over the years. And I, that's kind of strange, too. Students and professors typically don't become best of friends, but but Gary and I did, and he really helped me. I, I don't think I'd be a Christian today if it weren't for him. And he'd give me evidence and point me to different resources, and so I'd read and I'd read and I'd listen to audio cassette tapes and things like that, and that really helped my faith. Um, then I, I decided that I, I wanted to do a PhD later on, so that, that was probably the mid-80s. Then we get to the around, I, I finished my master's degree actually in 2000 because I just got out of school and just was working and everything. And I, I didn't think I'd ever do a PhD, but I ended up three years later enrolling in one because I, I wanted to, to learn. And I decided I'd study the resurrection of Jesus as a historian. So I had to learn what historians do, what tools and methods they work by. Um, and so that's what led me into this. And quickly I found that historians were saying there's no such thing as an unbiased historian, and one's biases, one's desires will quickly compromise the integrity of their investigation. I thought, well, that's me, because I'm setting out in this because I want to prove the resurrection of Jesus. Um, in fact, I'd looked and I'd say the whole thing that I've done in apologetics to what, prove the Christian faith for me, um, I was only looking at the evidence to prove what I already believed. And so I recognized, you know, I started to doubt again. And so it was at that point that I went out one night and I prayed and I said, God, I do believe that you exist. I believe Christianity is true, but I'm plagued by doubt. I have been for years. I understand it's just the way I'm wired. Many of us are just wired that way. I need to do this investigation with integrity. And I know this is probably going to make our relationship cold, at least for a while, and maybe I'm going to, God, if Christianity is false, I want to know it. Uh, so you can humiliate me in debates or whatever. I just want to know that it's false. I want to follow truth uh, wherever it leads. And um, my wife and Gary and Bill Craig and my doctoral supervisor, it was a very closed group, but they knew how much I struggled, wrestled with this, and I, I almost lost my faith several times. I was just trying to be as as neutral, as open, as unbiased as possible. I really wrestled with it. And um, But it, at the end of the day, I, I truly believe that the evidence tips in favor quite heavily for Jesus rising from the dead and that Christianity is true. Um, I can't say that uh, that means I never have any doubts. I still have doubts at times. Um but that's the way I'm wired, and the way I've come to understand it, um, you know, I'll, I'll say this when I'm upstage uh, lecturing at times, if you put a plank, sometimes you're up on the stage and they'll have these little uh, marks of tape on the stage, and they'll tell you, stay within this area because that's where the lighting is. Don't go outside this area where these ta this tape is. And um, so I can do that easily. You know, if it's, let's just say you've got 10 feet uh, broadly and then most across the stage, I could do cartwheels. I could jog backwards. But if you take that same space, extend it, and and suspend it between two skyscrapers and say, now I want you to walk across this, 
Um, I'm going to be worried. I'm not going to want to do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and it's not that I can't do it. I could easily do it. The thing is that gets in your mind is what if? Uh, what if? Because the, the consequences are so terrible. So I look at the evidence for Christianity and, you know, with my feet planted here on the earth and I say, the evidence looks quite good to me. But then at times I'll be laying in bed at night and wondering about it and say, but what if I'm wrong? What, what are the potential eternal consequences here? And that's what worries me. So it, it's an emotional kind of doubt for me. It's not an intellectual kind of doubt any longer. So that's kind of my spiritual journey. But because of this, I'm really after truth because we have nothing to fear about the truth. What I have to fear is that my biases will be so strong that it will prevent, prevent me from discovering truth and cost me eternity. That is what keeps me awake at night. So uh, just as a quick follow-up, uh, you spoke about doubts in a kind of a general way. Is there any particular uh, area of doctrine or research uh, that you find a little bit more challenging uh, in, in that regard? I, I wouldn't say so, Dale. It's probably more of, a, you know, there are intelligent people who think differently, like, you know, David who's on here. He's an intelligent guy. He thinks differently. There's a lot of scholars and philosophers who think differently. They arrive at different conclusions. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean they're right or wrong or just because, you know, there are a lot of intelligent people who think like I do. So, but that's an emotional thing. Um, you know, we wish we had more, I wish we had more evidence, but the, the issue isn't uh, a lot, I think we have sufficient evidence to establish the truth of Christianity, and that's the question. Is it sufficient? Um, but, yeah, of course I wish we had more. Um, and it's it's not just these things. It's, you know, atheists even doubt, too. Uh, Anthony Flew, who died, I don't know, like 15 years ago, uh, one of the most, perhaps the most influential atheist philosopher of the latter part of the 20th century. Um, and Gary Habermas, I think it was, uh, asked him once, because they were good friends, he says, Tony, do you ever doubt your atheism? And he says, Gary, I doubt it every day. Uh, C.S. Lewis was asked um, if he were, when, after he was a Christian, the BBC asked him, um, do you ever doubt your Christianity? He says, yeah, I do. There are days when atheism seems more plausible. But I have to admit, when I was an atheist, there were days when Christianity seemed more plausible. So I think doubting is something that can be normal, it can be healthy, um, as long as you keep it in perspective, rather than just, you just become a, a perpetual unchecked doubter, you, you know, that, that can just go too far. You have to look at the evidence, put a check on the emotions and, and be thinking or logic here, what, what's going on. So, but it's when the emotions take over and it's just that emotional doubt, what if I'm wrong? That's what causes me, uh, to doubt. It's not any particular argument or anything like that. So, Mike, this is David. Before we move on to the gospel section, uh, I wanted to just give Dale a, a chance to follow up. Uh, yeah, all I was going to say is uh, I hardly agree with what Mike said, and that's why I wanted him to give sort of a general outline of his story, because I, I resonate a lot with yeah. that. Oh, I thought you said you hardly agree with what I said. <laughs> that was that was David that asked you the, the question. That wasn't... But, um, no, I, oh. I agree... 100% with you wholeheartedly agree as opposed to you hardly agree. 
Yeah. Oh. <laughs> David, that, we'll blame that on the Skype connection. Then, <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's absolutely right. I, I myself, even you know, I've done all this research, and now I'm at the point where I think I have sufficient evidence to believe in Christianity that and live my life according to Christian precepts and that sort of thing. But I still have doubts. You know, I'm not a hundred percent certain Christianity is true. Uh, it is possible I've gotten things wrong. So uh, one has to always remain what I call a real seeker and uh, be open to the truth and, and learning that you're wrong on something. Um, but at the same time, you don't have to have unreasonable demands like I won't be a Christian until I'm 100 percent certain. Yes, uh, right. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Dale. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Otherwise you know, known as he hardly would, agrees with you. Uh, <laughs> something else about doubt that I found about myself, and it, it is this way for a number of people, but it's not that way for most people. I have found that it is the way I'm wired, and it's not just my faith I doubt. It's a lot of different things. So I remember when I was a college student, my dad took me down to the uh, – <coughs> stepdad took me down to the uh, – um, one Christmas, I think it was when I was a freshman, I was home for Thanksgiving break. He says, what do you want for Christmas? Uh, I said, I think I'd like a new watch. He said, okay, you, you want a nice watch? I said, yeah, I'd like a pretty nice watch. And um, so, I mean, we were a middle-class family, so nice watch didn't mean a Tag Heuer or, or a Omega or anything like that. A nice watch was Seiko. So, and Seikos were just coming out at that point. He says, I'm going to take you, there were really not too many malls at that point. So he said, I'm going to take you downtown in the city of Baltimore and we're going to go to this nice jewelry store. You can pick one out. And I remember just, they had this whole wall full of watches and I came down to two and it probably took me 20 minutes to half an hour to choose between those two. Um, and, and you know, it, it's just, that's the way I, my wife hates to go shopping with me because I'm that way. Sometimes it's over stupid little things that it takes me forever to make a decision. And then I'll make that decision and I will regret that decision. Um, yeah. And it's over little things. So um, did I get the right watch? Did I marry the right woman? Did I, did I get the right car? Uh, anything like that. Um, I mean, I married a, a fantastic woman, but I doubted it for 20, the first 20 years of our marriage. Um, and it wasn't anything because of her. It was, that's just the way I'm wired. Um, and so we tend to doubt everything. It's just not our faith. So once I realized that, that made a whole lot more sense of my doubting to me and helped me. So uh, just another quick follow-up to this. This yeah. is David again. Um, we really have other questions to ask, but this is, this is fascinating. Uh, so you would describe yourself as an evidentialist, I take it. Um, yes. And... That differs from me. When I was a Christian, I was not an evidentialist. I, I grew up in the church, and I was uh, a Christian by a faith standard that, that didn't have anything to do with the evidence. In fact, if you had asked me, you know, what was the evidence of the Christian faith, I couldn't have told you. Um, it, was, it probably wouldn't have been to my 30s uh, before I could have talked about evidences of the Christian faith. It, it seems to me that evidentialists walk a more difficult path because you your faith is dependent on a on some fairly concrete things that you can't fully uh grasp because they're not they're not fully concrete you know you're dealing with history and 
how much of that can you actually prove? And what if someone else can disprove something that, that was important to you? Or what if some new evidence comes along? It seems like faith yeah. was uh, based on, uh, you know, things that I didn't grow up considering faith. So to me, faith was the assurance that you had without the evidence, uh, or to take Jesus at his words, better to believe without evidence as opposed to uh, believing um, because you see the wounds. And so can you can you talk about the differences there? Because it, it, it always seemed to me that your type of faith, the evidentialist faith, is a, is a more difficult path to walk. Yeah. Well, David, I can say that I was much like you all the way through grad school. Um like, like I said, I had some roommates who were doing a master's degree in Christian apologetics at Liberty um, at the time. I, I had one during my, the, my senior year in college, and then I had two during my graduate years. Um, and um, to me, apologetics was just irrelevant. I mean, they would talk about David Hume. They would talk about evidences for the Christian faith and evidences for God's existence, evidence for the resurrection. And I can remember thinking, I'm not interested in that. I don't need evidence. I've got a relationship with Christ. I love reading his word. I know Christianity's true. Um, apologetics and evidence was uh, completely without value to me until I started doubting. Hmm. Um, and then evidence became really important. But I would say that um, I don't know that it takes, I don't know, it, maybe it's just where we are in our thinking at the time, David, because as an evidentialist today, I mean, I, I recognize that the, there is nothing that we can really know with a hundred percent, you know, pretty much, uh, about the past. Mm -hmm. We can't, we can't know something about antiquity with 100% certainty. And so we, but, but that, it, that's not just Christianity, that's any worldview, um, you're an atheist, David. You can't know that this universe came into existence out of nothing or that there are multi-universes um, and that there's no creator or that everything is here by natural causes. You can't know that with 100% uh, certainty So, because uh, nope. the evidence just isn't there. So you're an evidentialist, too, to an extent. Um, so we look for evidence, and we may judge that evidence differently. Um, and we're going to look at it and try to make the decision in our own best interest as far as eternity. At least that, that's what I'm doing as far as I have eternity in mind when, when I'm making my decisions on, on this. So, you know, you're an evidentialist in that way. I'm an evidentialist. Dale is certainly an evidentialist. Um, I don't, I, I'm not saying that Christians who are with the mindset that I used to have, that they're misguided, um, you can take a different approach and you can still be right. Like, I'm an evidentialist, I think Christianity's true, so presuppositionalists like John Frame, uh, like James White, I don't, I don't like their approach, I would never take their approach, but they believe the same thing I believe in terms of the faith. If Christianity's true, then they believe it, they just believe it for different with a different approach. Does that one, does that make sense? Yes. And and one thing, one last thing before I let David go on to his um, main topic about the Gospels and that sort of thing. But 
uh, just to, to back up uh, what Mike's saying here, it, it's not, depending on what you mean by evidentialist, and I think you're, you're referring to sort of objective evidences, like historical evidence for the resurrection or, or evidence from the shroud, but um, God has another form of evidence that's subjective, that played a role in my coming to faith through, you know, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit and properly basic beliefs. So yeah. in my case, it's actually a combination. It, uh, neither one is was sufficient on its own, but cumulatively, the objective evidence plus the subjective evidence was enough to overcome, you know, any negative evidences. So it's not that they're, they're not necessarily exclusive. Because uh, I know, David, you would, you would include like properly basic beliefs. That's presuppositionalism to you, even though it's, I would differ and say that's evidence. It's just evidence of a different sort. It's subjective, uh, and that sort. So, so yeah, I would I would just say they're not they're reinforcing. They're not mutually exclusive necessarily. Okay. Yeah, and I would say that I would add to that. I I did not become a Christian because of the evidence, but I am a Christian today because of the evidence. Mm. Okay. Perfect. Yes. So that's how that's how I understand it. To. I don't know anyone who started from scratch, looked at the evidence, and said, you know what, Christianity, that's that's it. Now, I know, uh, what's his name, Strobel? Um, yeah, yeah, his, his, Lee his, Strobel, his, Josh McDowell. His, his conceit is that that is, I, don't, I honestly don't believe Strobel's uh, <laughs> account that he comes at it um, clean and looks at the evidence and says, oh, no, that's Christianity. Uh, some of the others we could talk about, I, I definitely... Um, uh, relate uh, quite a bit to Josh McDowell, um, much more. C.S. Lewis. Trouble. I uh, an, another topic where you know I wish that we could have a conversation directly with C.S. Lewis. I have questions. <laughs> yeah. That, now now that tell me why don't you believe uh, Strobel? I mean I know Strobel. He's a he, he's an honest guy. He's a he's a great guy. I I I mean maybe I'm biased in just accepting his account, but I I know Leslie, his wife, and I mean she's affirmed what he said. Uh I mean he was an angry atheist when when his wife Leslie became a Christian, he was kicking holes in the wall of their house. He was so upset with her. And he looked at the evidence and he ended up be, becoming a Christian. And I've asked him, I said, "Lee, were you trying to disprove it?" He said, "No, I really wanted to be open with it." So I mean, certainly, if you watched his movie, it, it is a little. It was, you know, there's dramatic license involved. There's literary license involved in that. But the story, you know, it, it represents a, at least as far as I can tell, an accurate gist of his conversion experience. Yeah, I read the I read the books. Um, I watched the movies. Even as I read the books, uh, I thought, you know, this seems a little bit contrived. Um, mm, okay. So without without um, going too too deeply in that, it it struck me as a setup. As opposed to an honest investigation, uh, a, a setup with a conclusion, uh, and this is how I'm going to tell the story, uh, as opposed to this is what happened. No, uh, I'm not married to the idea that that is, in fact, how it happens. That's the impression that uh, I was left with. That's the impression that, you know, others uh, who read the book uh, have been left with, too. I mean, I know that it's had good reviews and bad, but uh, I'm not the only one to walk away with it from that. But I don't have personal knowledge of Lee Strobel, and I, oh, okay. uh, I accept your um, assessment that uh, he's, he's a good guy who had an honest journey. Um, but all, all I know of Lee Strobel is the words on the page, and they, they felt a little bit contrived to me. So I didn't believe yeah. 
Well, they've certainly been reworked, of course, right, from what actually happened, because it's for a book, for for a movie. So there is literary license that's involved in there. And it's probably kind of, David, it's probably kind of like, um, you know, you go out and let's say you have a conversation with a Christian and you walk away and you're thinking, man, I ate that, that guy up. I, I ate him alive. I, I just crushed him. And and you come back and you're talking to someone else about the conversation and you're repeating the conversation with your arguments. You're conflating or, or abbreviating them. You're making them a little more clear than perhaps you did mm-hmm. in that conversation to make your point a little more clear. Um, like if you could rewrite the conversation, that's how you would rewrite it. And that's how you relay it. Right. I mean, we all do that, right? Right. And I'm I'm sure there's some of that, quite a bit of that that's going on in Strobel's books. Sure, and you know, having having uh, written a book, I can I can say that when you're uh, recounting things that happened in the distant past, uh, none of it's true. <laughs> it's it's all reconstructed memory. Uh, you're not you're not lying about it, but well, it's true enough, right? right. I mean, it's yeah, it's true, it's trueish, but it's it's not. Um, it's not a videotape. You're not transcribing a videotape of what happened. Right. So I, uh, I I recognize that. Look, let's move on to the New Testament before before we lose our time. And people will say, yes, great conversation. But why didn't you ask him about the area of his expertise? So I'm going to <laughs> <laughs> make sure that we uh, that we do that. Um, tell us a little bit about the genre of the gospel. Now, since you included uh, a lot of this in your introduction. Uh, we we might can abbreviate some of this, but I'm I'm particularly interested in the genre of the Gospels. I hear a lot of uh, apologists and or uh, professors and people uh, academics talk about the Gospels as if it is a wholly unique category. Uh, yeah. So it's it's neither history nor hagiography or legend or uh, myth or anything. It's something entirely different and unique Um, and others would uh, categorize it in a in a more uh, general way so let me just start with that one are the gospels a unique uh, thing on on this earth and there's nothing quite comparable or do they fit neatly into a category well uh, of course they're unique in the sense uh, every biography every all literature is unique in some sense um, the Gospels, the, the most New Testament scholars up until, let's say, toward the end of the 20th century, uh, they used to think that they were biographies. And then later on, with German criticism, uh, up until the end of the 20th century, most scholars were thinking of the Gospels as sui generis, uh, a, a, a unique genre. Um, but then Burge's book came out, and he was trying to refute Charles Talbert and David Ani and some others who were claiming that the Gospels were ancient biographies of the Greco-Roman genre. There, there wasn't any real Jewish biography at that time, so Greco-Roman biography was pretty much the only game in town if you were going to write a biography of your sage or, or someone. So um, he set out to disprove that, and he came to the conclusion that he was wrong and that the Gospels indeed belong to the genre of Greco-Roman biography. Now, more study has been done on it since then, um, where I can say scholars are today, and I'm talking about a pretty large majority of New Testament scholars, 
whether they are atheistic, uh, agnostic, Jewish, liberal, uh, moderate, conservative New Testament scholars, the ma- large majority now believe that the Gospels at least share much in common with the genre of Greco-Roman biography. How does, how does Greco-Roman biography different from biography today? Well, uh, good question. So the objective was a little bit different. So we go to Plutarch. Plutarch is the greatest of all ancient biographers. And he wrote just a couple of decades after the Gospels, and he wrote in the same language, Greek. And Plutarch wrote uh, uh, over 60 biographies, of which 50 have survived. And his his biography of Alexander the Great, chapter 1, is the most frequently quoted passage in Plutarch. And there he talks about the difference between biography and history. History is about an era, about a people, about a war, like Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, things like that. Whereas a biography is a story about an individual. And he goes on to say that there are a lot of events in an individual's life that he's not going to report, and his readers should be patient with him and not say, well, why didn't you report this? He says, because this is biography, not history. And in biography, the objective is to reveal the character of the main person. Who is this person? Um, what character traits should a person emulate and which ones should they eschew? It was re- it was for the reader's benefit to improve their own life. And it was to reveal who this person is or was. Um, so we are going to use those, they report those, you're going to be select in reporting only those events and teach what a person said that reveal the inner qualities of who that person was. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to be selecting that way. Um, so let me just give a modern example. There's, I, I, I'm not aware of any biography like this today, but if you were going to write a biography of Martin Luther King Jr. and your objective was to reveal his courageousness and uh, heroism during the civil rights movement of the 60s in order to uh, encourage people to stand up for the oppressed today. You would be select in what you reported about Martin Luther King Jr., all these positive things about him, but you would omit something like his marital infidelities because that would not contribute to who he was with your objective in mind of encouraging people to emulate that to help the oppressed of today. So they, that's what they would do in antiquity, and you could do these kinds of uh, compositional devices. You compress stories, you conflate stories, you uh, transfer what one person said on an occasion, put it in the, on the lips of another one in order to simplify the story. Um, you would do all these kinds of things. Um, you could take some liberties in the way you reported things. You could paraphrase things in order to, in fact, you were that was the prescription you were supposed to paraphrase rather than quote a person verbatim. If you quoted a person verbatim, that was poor history writing. Mm. So those are the kinds of things and others and how ancient history differs, or or ancient biography differs from modern biography. Okay, so um, let me just throw another word in there, hagiography. Yeah, well, that didn't come until centuries later. Okay, but so my understanding of it is very simplistic, but I I would say that it's kind of um, like the uh, the biography you described, plus a lot of exaggeration uh, that does yeah. hero service. Uh, it it seems like there's a fairly short step between the Greco-Roman biography and hagiography, um, and 
so how do it seems like some of the stories in the New Testament, for instance, might might move over to that genre, even if even if that genre wasn't particularly named at that time. So can you can you tell me some of the some of the reasons why I would be wrong for thinking of um, the uh, Gospels as hagiography as opposed to the, the biographies that you described? Hagiography is a genre that didn't come until centuries later. Um, I haven't studied that that genre much because I focus on, you know, the literature written around the first century. Mm-hmm. So it is a different genre. I can't really give you some specifics, and I'd rather not speculate there um, or, and talk on something of, of which I'm just not familiar. What I can say is that um, even in other ancient biographies of that period, like Plutarch, um, and and others, they would report some things that were exaggerations. Um, uh, in fact, uh, Lucian of Samosata, uh, in How to Write History, I believe it was, which was written around the middle of the second century, um, he talks about um, how Aristobulus, who was a biographer of Alexander the Great, they were on a voyage together, and uh, Aristobulus gave Alexandra Alexander a uh, a draft of his biography of Alexander, and Alexander started to read it, and and um, he saw the story about where it said Alexander killed an elephant single-handedly, and Alexander took the biography and he threw it overboard, and he said, Aristobulus, I ought to do the same to you because this is a false story, and people will read this, and uh, they will uh, not believe it, and then they won't believe the things that I have done. Um, that have been great things. So we could see that ancient biographers could throw in some false stories. Um, I mean, most historians would say that a lot of what's contained in Philostratus's life of Apollonius of Tiana is false, is is fiction. Um, but for the for the most part, you would have histori- uh, biographers who would be writing. Uh, they they were attempting to give you an, a fairly accurate account of what that person was doing. Yes, they might exaggerate some things at times. Yes, they, they may um, uh, take some liberties that we may, as moderns, not feel real comfortable with them. But they don't usually engage in wholesale invention. Okay. So before I before I turn it back over to Dale, uh, let me just let me just round out this series of questions. Um, uh, two more two more real quick. Uh, so would you say that Acts is the same genre as the Gospels, or is that a different genre? Uh, I think it's different genre. Okay. It's uh, it's historiography. It's it's a history of the first three decades of the Christian Church. And because of that, uh, there are a number of scholars like Ben Witherington who would say that Luke is not biography, it is history as well, it, because Luke-Acts is like a, a combination, it's volume one and volume two. Right. Um, almost all would, would believe that. Um, so he thinks since Acts is history, he thinks that Luke is also history, and Luke does bear some uh, qualities of history writing, but I don't think that that makes it history. Uh Plutarch, in his, despite what he says in his Life of Alexander the Great, and um, he's got similar statements in other of his biographies, um, his life of Julius Caesar reads more like a history than it does a biography. He is not focusing on the character of Julius Caesar in that biography. He is more concerned with 
What was it about Julius Caesar that got him so popular amongst the average Roman, the average person? Um, so it has qualities of bio of history in it, but still no one is going to question that Plutarch's life of Julius Caesar uh, was a biography. So sometimes the the lines that distinguish biography and history can be fuzzy. Um, but no, almost everyone would say that Acts is history, not biography. Okay, so my, my last question in this line has to do with how we are to read the events in the Gospels. So the, the analogy that I can come up with, um, it, at least it's useful to me, uh, hopefully to the David, listener. David, sorry to interrupt. Um, I, do you, before we get to that, okay. um, I think it might be helpful just to lay out. Um, so, so Mike, um, given the uh, nature of the Gospels being Greco-Roman biography, um, and there are examples if we're looking at it from, okay, straightforward history, did this thing happen or not? Yeah. Um, do you think there are any examples in the Gospels uh, of actual historical errors? And not in the sense that it's an error uh, from the author's viewpoint or something like that, but if we traveled in a time machine, this thing didn't happen type thing. Well, of course, the parables, right? That would be one. So sayings, yeah. Um, I also, you know, uh, one thing I got, I've got i gotten in trouble with was some of those on the far right, um, and I just the far right, because those who aren't so out there on the far right would agree with me. I, it's not an original idea with me, but the Matthews report that the saints uh, raised at Jesus' death and came out and appeared to others after Jesus rose from the dead, I, I, I tend to think that had we been there, we wouldn't see that. And I don't think that Matthew intends for us. I'm not deny. I'm not saying Matthew gives us a false report. What I am saying is that Matthew did not intend for his readers to understand that in a literal historical sense. We find similar things in Jewish literature, like Josephus, in his Jewish War, um, and we also find it in um, a lot of the Greco-Roman literature, like Livy, uh, Philo, Cassius Dio. Plutarch, we, we find these kinds of things in there, like darkness, uh, ghosts uh, of the dead coming out at sunset and walking around, um, all, all these, a lot of these kind of things we see in the Greco-Roman and Jewish literature. So these are special effects. It, it would be like today us saying 9-11 was an earth-shaking event or it rained cats and dogs. We don't mean for people to interpret that language in a literal historical sense. It's 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 linguistic idioms, it's rhetorical devices, and I think that's what Matthew's doing there. Perfect. So to, to say, if do, am I think Matthew is falsely reporting or something that's in the Gospels that if we'd been there, we wouldn't see it. By saying that, I, I just need to clarify what I mean by that. So, so you're I, saying that, that you don't think that anything they meant to be literal didn't happen. You, you think everything they meant to be literal actually happened. That's right. Now, I can't prove that, but I don't have reason to believe. If we come out, if, if we allow the supernatural, okay, and once we look at the evidence, if we conclude that Jesus rose from the dead, which I think the evidence is sufficient for that, if we conclude, if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then things such as a virgin birth is child's play. Walking on water for a deity is nothing. Feeding 5,000 
for a deity is nothing. So if Jesus was who he claimed to be, then the miraculous events are entirely at home. Now, we can debate over things like, did the author actually intend for us to think this? Is the virgin birth something that was meant to be understood in a historical context, or is this some sort of a, you know, a way of writing literature and honoring, you know, someone of, of, of greatness? Uh, you could ask those kinds of questions, and those would be fair questions. Um, some of them would be unanswerable, I think. Okay. But did they lie about it or just invent something? I, I don't see any reason to think that they did. I think I think that we could get stuck there for a long time, and I would love to. Maybe maybe we could have you back uh, sometime, and we can get stuck in this particular talk, uh, topic. But I think that the topic of whether a thing happened or didn't happen is even broader than that. So if you if you go outside of the the more um, challenging uh, events like the Great Resurrection of Matthew twenty seven. Uh, and move on to something like the woman uh, caught in adultery. Um, the, the the same question applies. It, oh yeah, yeah. That's that, and that would be a fair question, sure. And that's a that's a that's an issue of the manuscripts and and whether you know it was part of the original. Yes, but for the for the average person reading this, is a matter of did it happen or did it not happen. Um, sure. So you know, and some I, people, I understand well, that there are a number of scholars issues. would say, a number of scholars would say that that story may be authentic. It just didn't belong in John, or it was something that people knew to be historical and was included at a later time. But but things like that, I think we can bracket it and say, uh, we don't know and we can't know. It's kind of like the ending of Mark, okay? That wasn't in the original, uh, verses 9 through 20 about picking up snakes and drinking poison. That wasn't in the original one. So you, you, you can't blame the Gospels and detract from their reliability just because uh, uh, you know English translations often include a dubious text. Okay, so and what did David's question, I guess, for the for the average Christian then, was something like the ending of Mark. Um, if I'm just an average Christian and I know about some issues with it, um, I guess what the average Christian should do is sort of put a bracket on that and not go out and start drinking poison or that sort of thing. Like I think that's what David's trying to get. Like um, with these with these sort of issues, is well, it's part of Scripture, so the Christian should interpret it as, you know, in the same way they do other things that aren't questionable? Or should they say, well, we know it's questionable, so we'll just put a hold on that until we learn more type thing? How do you even know when there's a bracket? I mean, like the, the Matthew 27 uh, incident, just as an example, yeah, so we can put a bracket around that. But that's because you and I have a little bit of scholarship uh, around this. But a reader is reading this story. Everything in this story is absolutely read literally uh, as straight biography or history, however you think about it, and then you get to this thing, and suddenly it's not straight uh, history anymore. This is this one little piece that's not even a whole verse long is certainly certainly figurative and no longer literal. Well, then you go back to literal. How is anyone supposed to know that? I, I wouldn't say it's quite that simple, David. Um, you know, you look at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, I think 24 and following, um, you know, there are numerous uh, items in that that should not be understood in a literal sense, um, that they are figurative. In, in fact, you come to the book of Acts and Pentecost, and you have it talks about speaking in tongues. 
And the people out there were saying, these guys are filled with new wine. And Peter gets up and says, no, it's too early in the day. I think that's kind of funny, actually, because that could be read to understand. Yeah, come back and see us tonight. Um, <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's I always too early. That's the... pretty bad evidence. I mean, there are a lot of people who drink when it's too early in the day. <laughs> <laughs> it's too early in the day. Um, it says, this is, this is a fulfillment of what Joel the prophet said. And he's referring to Joel chapter 2, where he says, Young men will have visions, old men will have dreams, the Spirit of the Lord falls upon you, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, they were speaking in tongues, and yet he's talking about visions and dreams, and that same context also talks about the sun going dark, the stars falling out of the sky. Well, none of that was meant to be interpreted in a literal sense. They're talking about that in phenomenological uh, special effects language there. And and Peter's saying that that has been fulfilled in their presence that day, and he call, tells them to call in the name of the Lord and be saved. So we find this kind of, uh, of stuff through throughout there. We find parables, we find this apocalyptic kind of language. So to say that the whole Gospel of Matthew is to be understood literally, historically, until you get that fragment of that verse, I, I think is a mischaracterization of that. You You do have these kinds of things in the Olivet Discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got parables, so you have genres within genres, and it would be just, David, it'd be like you and I talking about 9-11 and the events of that day, and then I'd just throw in that phrase, yeah, it was an earth-shaking event, wasn't it? And you say, wait a minute, you, you, you must mean that in a historical sense, because the whole thing we've been talking about actually happened, we could see it on video, and then you just throw in this one statement like that, uh, that's not to be interpreted literally. Well, how do we know that that's not to be interpreted literally? Well, that's where study and research comes in. So for the for the sake of time, I want to let you get away with that. But for the sake of pride, I can't. Um, so the, the fact is, yes, I get that. But I don't think that example really pertains. Uh, if we're talking about the 9-11 incidents and then you throw in something like that. First of all, I know, I, I understand that you're using figure of language, you, we're using figure of language throughout. But if you were to say it was an earth-shaking event, in fact, uh, the news reporter said it was a 6.2 on the Richter scale, and uh, three buildings fell uh, that, that were otherwise protected because of that. So you're giving these verisimilitudes. Now it sounds like you're talking literally. That's what happens in the Matthew story. So he doesn't just throw in an idiom and, and go out. He actually adds some ver- verisimilitudes. Uh, such as, and this is when they came from the uh, the grave, and it was before this time. And so he, he adds some things around that uh, that kind of take it outside of the figurative language. So I think that's why it doesn't read quite the way uh, you've categorized it there. Well, I, I would say, uh, well, I agree with you there. I mean, there's no perfect analogy, except I can give it an analogy, uh, from, at least from modernity here, but I can give some analogies from antiquity. So when Julius Caesar died, we, we've got a numerous accounts of his assassination, um, and yet we have some of the similar phenomena that's reported. So Livy reports uh, a numerous items that hap- uh, phenomena that happened at Caesar's assassination. There was a comet, there was darkness, Mount Etna erupted, uh, uh, black intestines were seen outside of cattle, streams stopped flowing, uh, fighting was seen in the heavens. Um, so these, these kinds of things, uh, Cassius Dio says that when Caesar went into Egypt, 
that the doors to the Temple of Zeus, which took more than uh, which took several men to to open, opened by themselves. Uh, fighting was seen in the heaven. There was a comet. Uh, uh, voices were heard in the forest. When uh, Josephus says just before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, um, a cow gave birth to a lamb. There was a comet. Uh, there was a light in the middle of the night that shone down on the temple that was brighter than day. There were voices heard in the temple that said, we are now leaving this place. The temple gates, which took more than 20 men to open, opened by themselves. You start to see that there is a pattern with this stuff um, in ancient historical and biographical writings. So no one doubts that when Josephus and others report the destruction of the Jerusalem temple that had occurred, or that Caesar went into Egypt, or that he was assassinated, it's just that when you read this stuff in the ancient literature, and then it's got these kind of portents that are added into it um, for special effect to emphasize the, gra the gravity of the situation, then, then you start to see how this, this works more. And to complicate things more— um, John Ramsey wrote a book uh, published, I don't know, about 15 years ago. <laughs> it wasn't a bestseller. John Ramsey's a friend of mine. He's a, a, a retired classicist for, from the uh, University of Illinois in Chicago, and he wrote a catalog of, of comets in the Greco-Roman literature from 500 B.C. to 400 A.D. Like I said, it wasn't a, uh, a bestseller. And in that, he takes, as far as he knows, every account where it mentions a comet in the Greco-Roman literature during those 900 years. Mm -hmm. He puts it in the original language, the Latin or Greek, and then he uh, translates it. Um, and then he tries to verify in some cases whether that comet was there. Sometimes you can show that it was because it's multiply attested in the Chinese literature, which would have had no connection with, with the Greco-Roman literature. Uh, other times we know that the comet was there because it was Halley's Comet or the Hale-Bopp Comet, something like that. Now, what's really interesting in a couple of those cases that also reports that not only was there a comet, but there was also an eclipse of the sun. Now, we can verify the comet, but what's interesting, you can go, there's a, a website NASA has where you can uh, enter a year, click on a geographical region, and it will tell you whether there was a visible eclipse in that region that year. So in some cases, you can show that the comet is authentic in that report, but the eclipse was not which shows that the Greco-Roman author commingled natural phenomena that were interpreted as portents and commingled them with adding some that were not historical for effect. So what if there was darkness that day of Jesus' crucifixion and Matthew added the thing about the raised saints in order for effect? So this is the way the Greco-Roman and Jewish literature, this is how it was written back then. So, you know, I can say the thing about 9-11 was an earth-shaking event, or it rained cats and dogs, or his eyes were bigger than his stomach, you know, these kinds of things, to just give you an example of how some of this thing, we, we do some of the same things today. But when you read the Greco-Roman and Jewish literature, it's really an eye-opener to show this is how they wrote back then. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that people would have thought that a cow gave birth to a lamb when the temple was destroyed because Josephus said it, or that streams stopped flowing and uh, black intestines were seen outside of cattle and that pale phantoms were seen walking around at sunset because Livy reports, uh, reports. I don't know that people would have interpreted that back then as it actually having occurred. Okay.
Well, if, if that is the case, there are a lot of people who have been reading their Bibles wrong and have a very uh, gross misunderstanding. Well, that's true, but you know, in the, early, what he did. in the early church, you had some men who were performing self-castration over Jesus' statement, uh, you know, that some made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. That and you had most to have... unfortunate, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, hermeneutical blunders can have tragic consequences. <laughs> 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 Imagine being one of the guys that did that. They say, well, you know what? That was not really meant to be understood in a literal sense. <laughs> you, you know what? I actually thought about that when I was a teen Christian, this is the type of Christian that I was. Let's not dwell on that, though. Thank goodness I still sing bass. Um, <laughs> so, look, I, you've been I, generous with your time. Do you have another 15 minutes so that we can talk about miracles? Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. Um, well, one thing just because uh, I think some of the, the questions on miracles have already been covered in what we've been talking. But one thing is, so I'm just sort of interested in what we're going on. Because I know in a couple weeks time, David's going to be mounting an argument from biblical confusion. And I see that as sort of related to this question. So I, I'm just sort of curious if, if I could recruit you and get some of your feedback, Mike. But um, do you think uh, that the average Christian is dependent upon scholarship to identify, um, you know, the different types of, of literature. The fact that this is apocalyptic uh, genre within the genre, or, some, or something like that. Or are there indications within the Bible itself that that Christian, the average Christian, can pick up on? Or uh, you know, are, are they dependent on scholarship to, to differentiate between the different types of texts? And if if so. Do you see that as a problem at all? Well, it's certainly a, a, a challenge, right? Um, I don't see any harm, though, if the person in the pew who's not acquainted with Christian scholarship or scholarship and and interprets those saints raised that Jesus' death uh, reported in Matthew, if they interpret that historically and Matthew didn't mean it that way, I mean, there's really no harm done in that. Um there is harm done if they read Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right, uh, if your right eye makes you sin, rip it out and throw it from you. Um, now there's because it, it goes on to say, if or it is better for you to um, to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you sin, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose a body part than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, there's nothing in that text that would seem to suggest that that is not to be understood in a literal sense. Um, but why is it that we don't—most Christians, the majority of them, don't cut their hands off or, or, or gouge their eye out uh, if, if they're lusting? Because most of them aren't that crazy. I, I don't think it's because they have a more nuanced understanding of the literature, though. Yeah, I, I would say that. They, they want to—they're they, guessing it's probably not meant to be understood in a literal sense. And they would be right, even though there's nothing in the text that would suggest that that would be the case. But then when you read Seneca, who is believed to be the brightest Roman mind of the first century, who died around the same time as the Apostle Paul, he said, if your heart is evil, rip it out. Mm -hmm. So he says the same kind of thing, and of course he's not saying that to kill himself. Paul rephrases that in his letters, he just says it in a different way. Consider the members of your earthly body to be dead to immorality evil desire, passion, and greed. So um, it's like, it, you know, if, if you take Paul's word there, look, if, if you have a problem with lusting, 
act as though you don't have any eyes. Uh, go and act as though you don't have any eyes, and because blind people can't lust in that sense, they can't look on a woman and lust after her. Um, it, it, uh, uh, a dead person can't murder someone else. So if you're really upset with someone, you want to kill them. You know, consider the members of your earthly body to be dead in that sense. Well, dead people can't do it. I think Jesus is just using hyperbolic shock language there, the same kind of stuff that Seneca used. If if your eye causes you to lust, rip it out, you know, like as though you don't have one. Um, so right. there's and, nothing and so, in the text that would suggest that. But when you read outside the text in the Greco-Roman literature, then it's like, ah, you can gain some insight. Right. So I, I, I get what you're saying there. But once again, Jesus language can be a little bit more confusing than uh, that of Seneca, I think, because Jesus does go on to say it's better uh to uh, enter heaven maimed than to in, in than to have your whole body burned up in hell and so we are we then be, start impinging on another major doctrine a doctrine of hell that that people would use this passage to um to say look so there is a hell and it is uh, and it is punishment and it's you know you can be burned up and you you know you get a lot of things from this passage and once again i'm not arguing what the proper uh, hermeneutical method is for sorting that out but it's a little bit more complicated because it is connected to other things that christians at least of a certain persuasion take very literally yeah and the concept of hell and the nature of it is something for a different discussion but i don't see where that really complicates this more it's close enough to what seneca saying to suggest that this is not to be understood in a literal sense. And certainly Jesus' disciples didn't interpret it that way, because we don't hear about them tearing out their eye or cutting their hand off. And certainly, as men, they would have struggled with sin and lust, just like any other man does. Sure. So that, that said, let's let's jump into a little bit of miracles. I can't, I can't help but follow up with a thing that I, I feel like I'd regret if I didn't ask you, though. Um, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, or the plane, yeah. whichever you prefer. L literal, not literal. Uh, did did it actually happen, um, or is are people saying, well, this is the sort of thing that Jesus would have said? Um, yeah. So is, well, there's certainly uh, we have two versions. Go go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. It's 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 just kind of to round off that question and that understanding and take it uh, outside of the the more. A phenomenal thing like the resurrections, just something as simple as the Sermon of the Mount, and we get some mm -hmm. narrative and some setup, and this is how it happened, and this is where the apostles were standing. Did that? Are we to read that as if it actually happened, or is this just a kind of a setup, a, a narrative setup, so that they can say this is the sort of thing that you might have heard Jesus say? Well, I think the latter one would have been allowable, but I think the former one is what happened. What okay. we have. We do have two different versions of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. I do, I'm pretty certain that they're the same event because of where it appears chronologically, what comes after it, and so forth. Um, I have, I was in Jerusalem in or, or Israel in October of 2017, going back October this year, and I stood at a place very close to the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount, and I recited it. It's on my YouTube channel. You can you can see it, um, and the acoustics were just terrible. There's just no way that if Jesus was on top of the Sermon on the Mount, as Je as Matthew portrays, that more than 5,000 people would have heard him. But if you go to the traditional site where Jesus is at the bottom of the Mount on the plain and the people would have been sitting on the hill, um, the acoustics are phenomenal. And so Luke's setting is probably correct. 
is almost certainly correct, whereas Matthew's is not. What, what most scholars do think is that Matthew, who is showing Jesus uh, as a type of a lawgiver here, a type of Moses, um, that, uh, you know, there's this Egypt and Israel thing that is going on. Um, he relocates where Jesus is, giving the Sermon on the Mount, the law, at, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, um, to represent God and the law up there, and then he comes down, just like Moses came down off, off the mount. He's doing this to, to give you a picture. There's a portrait. There's an underlying message in here. And most scholars, uh, New Testament scholars, think that, that Matthew uh, has taken a, a number of the teachings that Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount, like those reported in Luke, and then he has called uh, teachings that Jesus gave elsewhere, and he's weaved them together in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So if we'd been there with the video camera, we would have heard Jesus on, seen Jesus on the plane— we would have heard him give teachings much like we see, uh, read in Luke, and uh, part of them in Matthew. But if you, if we'd been there, you would, you would, you would say, well, wait a minute, there are a number of these teachings I didn't hear Jesus give right here, but they're in Matthew. And if you were talking to one Matthew or one of his uh, Jesus' disciples, they would said, oh yeah, 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 but Jesus taught these things elsewhere. And Matthew just takes them together and weaves them into this. This is what most scholars believe. So, yeah, that's. Does that help your your question? Sure. It it, it adds to the list of scholarly opinion about what happened. <laughs> and so I uh, I wanted to to get yours there. I, I I respect that opinion. I think that's probably um that's probably pretty close to the the middle of the road, but there, there are scholarly opinions to the left and the right of you uh, on that. So I, I would just point that out. Well, there's certainly there on the right, I, I, and I'm sure there's some on the left, but I, I think that's what I'm just giving you is the opinion of, of a pretty large majority of New Testament scholars, including evangelicals. Now, of course, there are going to be some scholars, they're usually not gospel specialists, but there are going to be some scholars that would disagree with that, but I think they just have an anachronistic view of what we're supposed to be reading in ancient biography. And what I just mentioned Matthew doing, that that's just part and parcel of ancient biography. Matthew would not be unique there. Other ancient biographers would do the same sort of stuff. Sure. All right. So, so Dale, so, take us to take us to miracles, uh, Dale, and close us out. Perfect. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, now sort of focusing on to miracle accounts in particular, um, in the first place, uh, we've we've already mentioned your your research into the resurrection uh, miracle specifically. But apart from the resurrection, um, do you think there are any specific miracle accounts that uh, we have good evidence to suppose are historical in nature, um, and versus any particular miracle accounts that? we're not sure it happened or we can, can or scholars can conclude probably didn't happen and, and if i can re ask a follow-up right now should we take every miracle account in the bible literally as as we understand literal today or should we uh, read them as maybe it happened maybe it didn't happen how how are we supposed to read the average miracle that we run across in matthew or luke well, that's that's not an easy question to answer, um, uh, David. I would say that my personal belief 
my personal belief is that the miracles that are reported in the Gospels, I think that they actually occurred. I think all of them occurred. Okay, but I cannot prove that as a historian. Um, if I'm trying to prove something as a historian, then I would look at it and I would say, all right, what evidence do we have for, for this stuff? Um, and of course, it's, it's possible that, just like you have Matthew doing with the Sermon on the Mount, um, that you have some miracle accounts in the Gospels where there's some conflation of two miracles that are going on, and they're conflated and represented as one for purposes of economy of, of the text. Um, is it possible that when Matthew says that there were two demon-possessed guys there uh, for legion, whereas the others say that there was one, is Matthew, were there two guys, and that the other Gospels just report one because that was the person speaking? That's called literary spotlighting. It's one of the most common literary techniques in ancient biography. It's, it's, it's amazing how prevalent it is throughout Plutarch's lives. Um, is that going on, or did Matthew, was he aware of another de demon possession where Jesus exercised the demon? That's uh, the stories in Mark or in Luke, and rather than narrate that, he just has two demon-possessed guys that Jesus uh, expels the demons from. Uh, you know, we can say we might prefer one or the other, but w we just really don't know. So some of that could be going on. Um as a historian, I might look and say, well, I'm, I'm going to apply the same kind of criteria that I would apply to other things. Uh, does this appear in some of the earlier sources? Um, is it multiply attested? Now, of course, if Matthew and Luke are using Mark as their primary source, as most scholars believe, then just because it's in Matthew or Luke doesn't and, and Mark doesn't mean that it's multiply attested. But if it's in Mark and it's in John, well, then that's a different thing. Maybe you could say that there's a case for multiple attestation there. Um, especially if we take it, as, as I and a number of scholars do, that Mark is reporting the recollections of Peter, as, as he recalled Peter teaching them. I think there's really good evidence for that, and in fact, the majority of scholars do hold that Mark is, uh, a slight majority of scholars hold that Mark is reporting what he heard Peter say. Um, the majority of scholars today do think that John's Gospel was not written by the Apostle John, of the son of Zebedee, but whoever wrote it was either one of Jesus' minor disciples, an eyewitness, or that the author, who would be unknown to us, was using one of Jesus' disciples, whether a minor disciple or, or John, the son of Zebedee, as their primary source. Either way, it's based on eyewitness testimony. So you'd have two Gospels there, independent of one another, based on rooted in eyewitness testimony, reporting the same kind of miracle, and I think that that could show uh, that that would give evidence weighing in favor of the authenticity or historicity of that miracle. And there are a number of miracles in the Gospels that we can establish like that. Most of them, no. I will say that the majority of scholars today, uh, a, a, a virtual unanimous or consensus of scholars would say that Jesus was known as a miracle worker and exorcist during his lifetime. That's not to say that they believe that what he did was actual miracles and, and exorcisms, but that he performed certain deeds that astonished crowds, and both he and his followers and others who saw it believed them to be divine miracles and exorcisms. They believe that the, the scholars believe the evidence is good enough to establish that without necessarily weighing on the authenticity of a particular miracle count in the Gospels.
Okay, perfect. Um, and uh, we, so I think when I heard there, and but you personally also think that some specific accounts, like I, I'm thinking of sort of like Graham, Graham Twelfth Tree. I think he has a list of like 20, 22 or something. Uh, yep. He's the guy on that. He's the best guy on weighing on the historicity of Jesus's miracles in his book, Jesus, the Miracle Worker. Perfect. Um, all right. Um, so, and are, are there any particular accounts on the flip side for, for the skeptics? Though? Are, are there any particular miracle accounts that uh, you think there are good evidences that might suggest um, that it didn't happen historically? I know you don't believe well, let me, that. Let me give you a better out than that. Uh, kind of like with the uh, Matthew 27 issue, you would say, no, that's not a miracle story at all. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's something else, a different type of speech. So do you think that there are maybe some miracle stories that are understood as miracle stories, but that aren't miracle stories, and so therefore they wouldn't have literally happened? You know that that Jesus performed. There, there are none that come to my mind. What about uh, the right Earth off. star, the 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 magic yeah. star, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, right after there? I, right after I wrote my book, my large book on the resurrection, IVP asked me to do one of similar size on the virgin birth, and I had just moved on to the Gospels at that point, and I declined. I just haven't studied it enough, David, to be honest with you, to to be able to to weigh in on that. Um, do I think the virgin birth happened? Yeah. I mean, after all, if a guy rose from the dead, a virgin birth is child's play, pun intended. Um, but if I found out that, uh, it wasn't intended that Matthew and Luke did not intend to communicate that that was a literal historical event, it wouldn't bother my faith at all. So if a person, uh, let, let's take the resurrection off the table, if there were some miracles that they didn't believe, they, they looked at it and said, yeah, you know, I don't actually believe that that happened, that wouldn't be a matter of faith to you. I know that it would be for some Christians, uh, but w would you say that there are miracles that Christians have to believe, or is it is it a matter of, well, you can believe it or not believe it? Um, well, in there? terms of specific miracles, again, the majority of scholars would look and they'd say Jesus' miracles are multiply attested in, in multiple independent sources. They're attested in non-Christian sources, unsympathetic sources, early sources, um, embarrassing type sources, so uh, stories. So um, we have every reason historically to think that Jesus was performing deeds that were interpreted by him, his disciples, and others as divine miracles and exorcisms. Um, that doesn't establish the historicity of any particular one in the Gospels, but almost all scholars today, New Testament scholars, even the atheist ones, like Ehrman, well, no, not Ehrman, he's like alone, actually. He admits to being in a very small minority, and the minority, he's probably in a minority of just one when it comes to scholars that would say that Jesus was not known as a miracle worker during his lifetime. Um, so the evidence is there to establish that he was a miracle worker, however you might interpret the nature of those deeds. Um, the one miracle of Jesus that I think a Christian cannot deny and still be a Christian is his resurrection. Um, that was certainly meant to be interpreted or understood in a historical sense. And to not to deny the resurrection of Jesus, um, I— you know, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, divine, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So 
Uh, the resurrection is the foundation of the of the the truth of the Christian faith. Uh, to deny it, uh, I find it difficult to believe that one can even be a true Christian at that point. Mike Lacona, it has been a true pleasure uh, to have you on the show. Uh, There's so much more that I know that both Dale and I would like to ask you, but we're going to let you go, and uh, maybe you will agree to come back uh, again in a few months. Uh, It would be be great to follow up on some of these threads that we've pulled, but I, for one, would like to say it's it's been a delight. I expected it to be a delight, and it met and exceeded my expectations. So thank you so much for agreeing to come and chat with us. Well, thank you, uh, David, and thank you, Dale. It, it was a pleasant time. I'd be happy to come back on sometime. Excellent. And and uh, oh yeah, Mike. Before you go, um, before you do hang up or whatever, just give us uh, some sources or maybe specific articles or blogs on your website or debates, and we can provide that up for people to check out as well. Yeah. Well, I do have uh, I do have articles. I do have uh, uh, we have a new Risen Jesus podcast. Uh, you can find that on YouTube. You can find it on iTunes and Google Play. It's the Risen Jesus podcast. We just came out with that uh, November 1st. Uh, we have eight episodes we'll be doing. That was our first season. We'll be doing another season or two this year. Um, they can subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, type in my name. You'll see my YouTube channel. Uh, subscribe to it and we've got plenty of videos on there of debates and lectures uh things like you know did christians borrow from pagan myths did you know um are the gospels historically reliable things like that uh my debates with ermine my debate with john dominic crossan and others are on my youtube channel they can all see those there perfect very good uh listener next week uh gary habermas i expect an equally good conversation um and thank you all for listening thanks mike once again thank you dale and uh, we'll see you next time all right have a great week everybody thanks bye-bye